We've been a long time in Matthew's gospel. I don't know how long, but it feels long. Are these lights all the way up? Because they don't feel like they are. And old men need light to see. I mean, I do have this perfectly memorized, but... Okay, I don't. That was a lie. I confess, that was a lie. All right, we'll just do our best. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Lord. Hey, that was a trick. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Let's pray. Father God, we approach your word, and we do so um, to learn and to hear what Jesus has to say. And we ask you to always keep us um, in a condition, a spiritual condition that would be ready for his return. We look forward to, to that day. Some days more than others, we want it to come, but always we need to be ready. We ask you to help us understand his teaching here in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, back in the mid-80s, there were two guys who were experts in volcanic activity. They were studying this mountain called Mount St. Helens up north. You might remember that up there in the Pacific Northwest. And they filed a report with the government, and uh, these guys were Vulcan, Vulcan, volcanic experts in all of that, volcanology. They filed a report with the government that Mount St. Helens would experience a massive eruption sometime in the next hundred years. And this is in the mid-80s, and they said, but probably by the end of the century, like within 15 years or so, they were really emphasizing. And so naturally, more scientists came there, and they started to monitor the activity going on inside the volcano, and sure enough, um, Within a year, it started becoming very agitated. And people who lived nearby were told that a very large eruption was likely and it would be really wise to move. Two years after that, it blew. And I don't know if you remember, but it didn't blow up the way you usually see a volcano blow. It blew out, so it just like shoved a whole mountain down its side. They said that... um, 2.7 cubic kilometers of material, which which was like 5.5 billion cubic feet of rock went charging down this side of the mountain and um, obviously causing incredible devastation and down into a lake, uh, killed the lake and 57 people were killed, two scientists were killed, two photographers were killed, one took pictures of it as it was happening and then packed up his stuff and laid over his camera to protect the pictures because he knew he wasn't going to make it and, and he was killed. Um, some people that lived at the base of Mount St. Helens refused to move and others said, well, you know, it could happen, it's probably going to be 20 years from now so they didn't worry about moving and they're dead. And so we can see that some people, even in the face of pretty strong evidence and even the earth actually tremoring at times underneath their feet, don't believe that disasters can overtake them. They just refuse to believe it. Uh, Not me, it's not going to happen to me. And and the word believe is kind of important. If I say, I just don't believe it's going to happen, what you believe may not be what's dictating what happens in the world. You ever notice that? (laughs) Um, so it becomes a faith issue, doesn't it? Do I believe it or not believe it? Do I believe that there is destruction coming or do I not believe it? So when Jesus talks about the end of the world as we know it, he is dealing with exactly the same kind of mentality. Um, in Matthew 24, he's been describing, as we've already seen, he's describing events so calamitous 
that he says men will faint when the time comes with fear uh, when, as they see what's actually transpiring. And in verse uh, 21, he describes a great tribulation. He says, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And these last few weeks, we've been looking at what many Old Testament passages have to say about that same time, the time when this age comes to a close and another age dawns, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. But now in our study of Jesus' um, talk here, what's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's called that, why? Because it's on the, good, good job, Mount of Olives, very good. So we're entering a lengthy portion here where he starts to apply the things he's already been talking about. So what does this mean for us? How should we think about it? Um, It just may not be wise to think it has nothing to do with us because you don't know. It can happen in our time. So while the dominant theme of everything from verse 32 basically on could really be summed up in these two words, be ready, be ready. Jesus encourages our readiness by emphasizing in really unmistakable terms that everything he's described so far in this chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, everything he's described will certainly happen. It will definitely happen. It's just, it's just like those scientists saying, it will erupt. When, we don't know for sure, but within 100 years for sure, um, but it could be 15 years, could be sooner than that. Uh, and he, But he, being the Son of God, knows it, it is going to happen. It's certainly, it's not just a scientific probability that's very high. It's an absolute certainty. So he invites us to... Um, Learn from nature. So we're going to pick up the Olivet Discourse at verse 32 where he says, Now learn from the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. So here, here we are in 2020. It's January. It's winter. Um, when the seasons change and spring approaches, there are definite signs. You know, I've noticed, I've lived here a long time, and it happens every year. <laughs> spring comes, and the trees start to, uh, the ones that aren't dead anyway, they start to show definite signs, uh, clear indicators, right? Things happen every year. Trees go dormant, and then and after the winter, they start to bud again, and leaves start to unfold, and all, of things are, all these things are happening. So those are reliable signs that spring is coming, and, and then summer. So with the same kind of certainty that that's going to happen every year, Jesus' description of these end time events is equally certain. So he makes a direct application in verse 33. When you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. He being himself actually the Messiah. What things? Everything he's been saying. So verses 5 through 7, he talked about the beginning of birth pangs. So false prophets, wars, rumors of wars, nations against nations, famines and earthquakes. That's just sort of the beginning leading up to this thing. And then comes persecution and lawlessness he talks about. He talks about love growing cold amongst people. And the final very few years leading up to his return, the the very end, the definite signs that he's right around the, the corner there, Uh, begins with these blasphemous actions of the Antichrist. Verse 15, what he calls the abomination of desolation. And verse 21, what he calls the great tribulation, such as has never happened before or will ever before that or since that. 
So that's coming. And that brief time then concludes with Jesus' return in glory after these cataclysmic judgments are visited upon the earth. And that's verse 29 and 30. So we've already looked at those in the past. So Messiah comes right on the heels of all of these things. So verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So we have to talk about verse 34 a little bit because um, it's caused just all kinds of interesting speculation. Unbelievers would like you to point you to this verse and say, see, he thought it was going to happen then to that generation, the one he's actually speaking to. Ever heard anybody say that? Because that's kind of a common attack on the Bible. They say that Jesus is wrong. He thought it was going to happen to this generation. Um, you really actually hear that from pretty aggressive critics of the Bible. Um, I've heard it several times. But that, or I should say this, is probably the least likely way to understand these particular words in, in the context. So we're going to be really radical, and we're going to think about the context. Do you, do you like it when people take your words out of context? No, God doesn't like it either. It's just, it's just a bad thing. It's like, well, I didn't mean that. I said this and this and this all around that. Yeah, but, no, but you did say it. Um, that's not really fair. It's not really fair to do the Bible either. So never take things out of context. In Matthew 24, Jesus started this whole thing off when he said the temple would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another. And the disciples were shocked. And then later in that day, they come to him on the Mount of Olives and they ask him some questions way back in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So when he answers about the sign of his coming, he's talking about a certain generation. A generation. He mentions things that will lead up to it, which could span multiple generations. False messiahs, wars, famines, earthquakes, things like that. But when he gets down to the end, he says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then verse 15, he says, therefore... When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, I mean, that's very specific. And, and that's the generation. The one that sees that will be the generation that sees the second coming. So, in other words, once that happens, it's not going to be stretching on for another hundred years. You've got a very short amount of time. So he warns about... Um, Messiah figures or people that claim to be the Messiah and people say, oh, this is this guy or it's that guy. And he says, don't follow them. And he says, his coming will be really obvious. Verse 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. When he comes back, you will know. It's not going to be like, hey, there's this guy. I think he might be the Messiah. I think one of these weird streaming channels has some show called The Messiah now, and, and uh, it's just this guy kind of walking around. He's kind of weird. And it's not going to be like that. Not going to be like that. It's going to be really big. Everyone will know. So the word this, as in this generation, doesn't have to refer to the current generation, the one closer to the speaker in time, it can be this generation, the one close to the events as they're unfolding, the very events he's describing, who will see those events transpire. He's answering a very specific question about the future. In verse 30, he gives some of those events. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with the sky with power and great glory. That's what's going to happen as those specific signs unfold, like 
the abomination of desolation, um, the great tribulation, all of those things. That's the generation. So he's saying it won't be drawn out. That's the point. The generation who sees the abomination of desolation, Jesus says in verse 33, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. That answers the question they asked way back in verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he's telling what those signs will be. And that generation will experience the second coming. So he gives them the signs. The generation that sees the signs will be the generation he will return to. Not any generation, but this generation, the one that's going to see those signs. So of course we don't know which one that will be and we're, we're never told so it could be our generation. So the Christians have always had that expectation and desire even in the New Testament. The apostles are looking for it as well. They, they, they don't know when it's going to happen so they talk about waiting, waiting expectantly, looking for it and we've been looking for that for 2,000 years. But it's going to happen. It's just like when God made promises to Abraham about certain things happening. It might have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, but it happened. When he makes prophecies about certain things, it might be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but it always happens. It always ends up happening. So he doesn't tell us specific times very often. There are a couple of examples of that, but not very often. So we're supposed to keep our eyes open and not follow anyone who claims to be the Messiah without the signs. And every generation has to have it in mind that it might be my generation. The church is always to be doing God's work in expectancy that it could be right around the corner. Alfred Edersheim said it kind of beautifully, so let me read what he said. He said, the expectant church should have loins girt for work, her hands busy, her mind faithful, her bearing self-denying and devoted, her heart full of loving expectancy, her face turned up toward the sun that was so soon to rise, and her straining to catch the first notes of heaven's song of triumph. He says it better than I could, huh? But that's it. We're supposed to be expectant. But it might not be in our lifetime. So we might die and go to glory or glory might come to us while we live. We don't know. But far from being something that failed to happen, all that Jesus describes will certainly happen as certain as the spring will come and the summer will come. Actually, even more certain than that. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So it's more sure that the universe will exist tomorrow than... than um, that his words will pass away. That's a pretty bold claim. Creation itself will cease or fail before Jesus' words do. That's how certain all of this is. And that's how certain his coming in glory is, bringing with him both wrath and redemption. So the whole existence of our galaxy itself is less sure than the fulfillment of Jesus' words. That's what he's saying. Verse 35 has definite um, Old Testament flavor to it. God speaks that way many times about his promises. We read one this morning in, in Psalm 89 actually, one of those sort of references about the moon. As sure as the moon is gonna show up and do its little cycle thing, surely God is gonna keep his promises. One, probably the most famous and amazing example is the prophecy of the new covenant. You know, the Old Testament tells there's gonna be a new covenant. That wasn't something that just got made up in the first century. We were, we were promised that in Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Israel was so incapable of keeping the law of Moses. They sinned so much, so bad, so routinely that God promised a new covenant. And the new covenant is this. This is in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. It says, I will put my law, I will, God says, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their, their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That is an amazing promise. And we know of the new covenant because, well, as Christians, we are partakers in it, but it's promised to Israel. We're included by God's grace, but the covenant's made with Israel directly, the promise is for them. So, can that really happen? Will God actually do that? Well, of course, because he promised he would. But here's how he says it, just so you know, so you don't question it. Jeremiah 31, 35, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. In other words, the moon's doing its thing. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. So again, it's more sure than the fixed order of the heavens as we watch the stars go around and the moon go around and all of that. More sure than if, um, before you can take a spaceship to the end of the universe, which even on Star Trek they can't do. So... (laughs) um, it's more sure that he's going to be faithful to Israel and that will be a nation before him forever. I mean, that's how secure Israel's future is. It is as secure or more secure than nature itself existing. So when Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, that has the same power behind it. The power that set in motion the vastness of nature and the universe and all the order in it and the, the... plan that keeps it moving in a, in a way that we can see it every day. So what Jesus says will happen here in Matthew 24 is not kind of maybe going to happen. It's an absolute certainty. The plan is unalterable. It is fixed and it has the power of God behind it. God sovereignly rules over history and all earthly events and we can't change it. We've got to live within it and we have to order our thoughts and our lives by it. So then at verse 36, Jesus starts to shift his emphasis. So he's making that declaration. And now he's established a certainty of it. Now he's going to emphasize a very important aspect of it, which is that it's unexpected. As far as the world is concerned, they're going to be surprised. It, It cannot be calculated either. Verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father alone. So no one knows when. The angels don't know, and at least in the incarnation, even Jesus doesn't know. By the way, the fact that Jesus doesn't know is an important element in understanding the theology of the incarnation of his becoming human. What God's Son set aside to become human, that's a very major area of theology, but we're not doing that today. So um, today, 
you need to realize how crazy it is that despite the words of the Lord, people still claim they have it all figured out. Because uh, who was that guy a few years ago? Uh, Harold Camping, yeah, wasn't it him, Camping? He, he had it all figured out, right? The, and people were like quitting their jobs and you know, the date was gonna set and people were gonna, Jesus was coming back on a certain day. It's, that's happened so many times historically and he flat out here says that nobody knows, even he doesn't know. So, uh, but it happens all the time. Somebody gets a revelation or discovered some dating scheme in the Bible that tells exactly what year he's coming back and what is it about human beings that they just can't trust God with something they've got to like figure it all out, right? Put their brains to it or, or receive some mystical impression and decide what it is. Um, I, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago the Millerites. Um, William Miller was this Baptist pastor in New York. This is in the 1840s and Miller was sure that he could prove from the Bible that Christ would come back between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. He just wasn't sure about, somewhere in there, absolutely sure of it. And he had a friend who was a publisher. And so his publisher friend helped make his views really popular. I mean, they were very widely disseminated. A lot of people were talking about it. And um, people bought in, you know, because it's proven by scripture. Well, it didn't happen. So he recalculated, and he, well, let me go back and just check my figures one more time. And so he, he goes back into the Bible, October 22nd, 1844. That's the real date. I forgot this, and now, it, now I've got it all down. And as so often is the case, some people divested themselves of their property, sold their farms, sold all their, gave away their stuff, went up on a mountain. About 50 to 100,000 people were like totally into this. I mean, it was a lot of people. And... Um, they believed him enough to wait. So they all sit on the mountain and October comes and doesn't happen. And so they go back to you know, Mr. Miller and they say, what happened? He goes, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> but amazingly enough, many people just picked up where he was and just started doing variations on the same theme, you know, taking his calculations and doing them in different ways or whatever, using Daniel chapter 8 and all kinds of things. Um, and they decided it wasn't about Christ coming back. The calculations were about Christ doing something new. Ah. Now these are, the, these are really helpful tricks. You got to learn this trick if you want to deceive people. It's got to be something that you can't see. So... Um, Something happened that you couldn't see. Jesus, and so they invented this doctrine. This guy named Hiram Edson invented a doctrine. Now, now poor Mr. Miller just kind of gave up, but Hiram took it on and, and promoted this other idea. He said, Christ moved on October 22nd, 1844, from one part of heaven to another part of heaven, and now he's going through all the records of all the people on earth, and when he finally gets done, that's when he's going to come back as though Jesus doesn't have infinite knowledge and he has to sit there and go through the books for hundreds of years. But um, this idea became one of the foundation beliefs of what we call today the Seventh-day Adventists. They, they had, they're a direct descendant of those, uh, the Hiram Edson group, and a group that grew out of the Millerite movement. Jehovah's Witnesses, they made the same kinds of mistakes going on back then. They were sure Christ was gonna come back in 1914. Absolutely sure, and he didn't. So they used the same type of cover-up explanation, and this is what they actually published after um, Jesus didn't come back. 
When Jesus said he would come again, he did not mean he would return in the flesh, visible to men on earth. He has given up that earthly life as a ransom and therefore cannot take such life back again. The good news today is that Christ Jesus has come again, that God's kingdom by him has been set up and is now ruling in heaven. So he came, he just didn't come bodily. Now that's interesting because when the apostles in Acts chapter 1 watched Jesus ascend in his body, ascend into heaven with, you know, in cloud of glory, the angels were standing around and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have seen him go into heaven, if you watched him. So now, why is that in the Bible? So you won't be ridiculous and, and, and say things like, well, maybe he just moved from one part of heaven to another part of heaven, or those the kind of explanations. Um, he's coming back in the same body he rose from the dead with. He's going to reign upon the earth for a thousand years. I mean, that's all going to actually happen. God made promises. He's going to fulfill the promises. He promised land to Israel. He promised a kingdom to David. It's all going to happen on planet earth. He's coming back. He's coming back. So the spiritual return thing doesn't quite work. Not if you believe the Bible, all of it. So the date setters are not to be trusted because they don't know. Nobody knows. Only the Father knows. So uh, that's one thing you can take to the bank. Absolutely, nobody knows. Nobody knows when he's going to come. It's going to be a surprise. It'll just happen. Now, there's things that are leading up to it, and when certain things happen, that's, you know, it's, it's near, right? But nobody knows when that's going to all start, when the abomination of desolation is coming, when the great tribulation is coming. Nobody knows those kind of things. So Jesus uses the historical example here, just continuing this. He, so he talked about nature, and now he's going to talk about Noah's flood, verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's a pretty fascinating parallel that he chose to use there. So when you think about Noah's flood and the way the world was at the time, you think about a world that's devoted to evil, right? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God is grieved over the human condition in Genesis 6. It's a burden to his heart. His holiness demands action against this pervasive human wickedness going on. And in his wisdom, he determines a near complete destruction. He's going to start over with Noah, who, it describes in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So he's starting over. And what Jesus explains makes the story much more interesting here because God saw that men's hearts were evil continually. But what, what did the people who lived then think? Did they think they were evil continually? Well, the power people in life, I mean, by influential rulers, 
the leaders, they thought things were great. They loved it. Life was good. Life was good for them. Genesis 6 says the earth was filled with violence, but these people were not uncivilized savages. This wasn't like, um, what's that book, uh, The Lord of the Flies. You know, it's not something like that. It's, uh, it's civilization prospering, people doing their thing. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage, festivals, good things. They were falling in love, enjoying life, partying, planning for the future. But of course, they were also deceitful, immoral, unjust, given to exploiting people and using other people, enslaving people, warring on each other, oppressing the weak, taking advantage of things, just like many civilized people do. But they weren't some sort of primitives or something. So all the while, they're enjoying whatever civilization they've created for themselves. All that time, God was planning their overthrow. And they had no idea. I I shouldn't say they had no idea because Noah was preaching to that civilization. Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. So Noah was telling people what was coming. And he was building this gigantic boat, this ark that nobody had ever seen one of those before. So there's a lot was going on. But I guess you could say they had no idea because they didn't consider the possibility that it would actually happen. It was not going to be, it's not true. They just laughed it off. That's not real. That's not coming. It's not going to rain. I guess you could say they had no idea because they wouldn't accept it. So Jesus says the end of the age will be like Noah's day. It'll take people by surprise. Verse 39, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So they heard the message. They did not embrace it. They did not understand it until it was too late. Then they're running for high ground. But it never, they can never get away from it. So human beings are pretty interesting creatures. Psychologically, we, we adapt to almost anything. You know? And yet, we're rather fragile creatures at the same time. We have, if we have our basic needs met, then we're pretty content and we just kind of go with the flow of whatever the culture is. So if the culture is corrupt and wicked, we just kind of roll with it. Um, we can adapt to cultures that, we, well, we live through this. I mean, if you're as old as I am, you, you've lived through it. You can, you, people adapt to a culture in decline where moral standards completely change and they just adapt to it. Uh, they, they lose their freedom, corruption, criminality, the loss of decency and respect and all those things. People become pretty much what the culture wants them to become. They just kind of adapt. And they accept evil as a way of life. There aren't too many lows that people won't accept. Uh, it just eventually becomes normal, whatever. You know, abortion was in the news this week, and it's kind of the, that time of year when we talk about Roe versus Wade and all that stuff, but, but an actress was actually accepting an award, publicly crediting the award with her right to have ended her child's life when she was younger. I mean, that's what she was, she was literally holding a little golden statue boasting that she had ended the life of her child to have it. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. I mean, that's literally a, a little idol she had in her hand that she always wanted, and she got it because she killed her child when it was very young and she was young. So um, people, people, not very long ago, people would never have done that. Even people that may have had an abortion wouldn't have done that. Because they used to say it was a tragic necessity. That's what the culture said when we started to embrace it. It's a tragic necessity. But now it's literally a way to fame and riches, and it's, you're proud of it, which is a very different thing. That's, a, that's scaling down. That's sliding down 
pretty, pretty deep when you get to that point. And people applauded when she said that. All the rich, fa- fancy people, all made up, they all applauded when she said that. It just suddenly it became a good. It became a good to sacrifice a life for fame and, and riches. That is moral decline. Well, you know, the Romans, way back in Paul's day, they believed in bread and circuses, right? Keep the population fed and entertain them. And we can do anything we want after that. People will compromise every virtue if they think just about everybody's cool with it. You know, it's okay. And if they're entertained and stimulated, they're okay. So for all of human history, um, those are some of the things that you can do to keep people comfortable even in great wickedness. And that's the civilization that Noah lived in and that's the civilization Paul lived in as well. It's a civilization we live in. People will compromise virtue if they think everybody's good with it. And, and think about that. People used to look forward to being entertained like, well, the, the gladiator show's coming up next Tuesday. Now we literally have entertainment. Const- we can just stick it on our face and have it there all the time, constantly. You know, So we're well fed. We've got entertainment every moment of the day. So whatever's going on, it's okay. It's okay. So all that's really left is the quest for things and pleasures. That's all people live for when they get to that point. So when the Bible talks about their the thoughts of their hearts being evil continually, that's all it's saying. It's not saying they were depraved monsters running around beating each other up constantly. It's just saying that they got to the point where as long as they had their, their things and their pleasures, nothing else mattered. There was virtue didn't matter really in a significant way at all. And that's kind of, we can see that as a very strong current in our current culture. But that's all it really takes to accurately describe the thoughts and intents of the heart being only evil continually. So we're not talking about brutish depravity, just everyone agreeing, um, just talking about everybody agreeing that what God thinks doesn't matter very much. That's all it takes to be described as or defined as the thoughts of the heart being evil continually. So Noah's generation was like that. The generation at the end of the age when, before Jesus comes back will be like that. Flood worthy, if you want to call it that. Man is so inclined to sin that these loss of virtues can happen very, very quickly, as we've seen. So it's all an offense to God, and this, the people raising their tiny little fists and defiance against him and just doing their own thing and going their own way. But he is really patient. In fact, from the time God told Noah about building the ark, at the time that ark was built, it took a long time. God was very patient. And Noah was preaching the whole time righteousness and calling people to God. So God offers redemption and forgiveness and mercy. God wants people to come back to him. And that is why, as a, if you're a Christian, you exist to tell people that God wants people to come back to him. That's, that's our message. People need to know that, that God wants them back. And that's, we're here to tell them that. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And the good news of the gospel is that light. It's the brightness of that light. And while God has a very great saving love, God is not soft or weak or compromising when it comes to evil. So judgment does come. It will come. It's an absolute certainty. And to be ready is essential. To be ready and not get swallowed up by it. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, Jesus says. 
And then Jesus says, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So life's going to go on, and then it's going to come crashing to a halt. Verse 40 is a little bit mysterious. Um, There's a lot of difference of opinion about it, but he says, um, he's talking about an ordinary life that's suddenly interrupted. There will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one left. There will be two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. And some people see sort of the rapture of the church here, but the context is all judgment. The coming judgment will be sudden and inescapable and overwhelming and a surprise. And just like Noah's flood began with the rain, you know, so I'm not talking about necessarily instantaneous, but just it began with the rain and then, hey, this rain isn't stopping. Wow, it's getting really wet here. We need to move to higher ground. And it just kept going until they were swallowed up. That's the same thing it's going to be like. If you read the book of Revelation, there's just more judgments poured out and more judgments poured out. And it's over a period of time, but then it just consumes everything. So people will be at work and some people will be on the other side of the world sleeping in bed or hitting the streets for the nightlife or watching shows on TV or playing with their phones and gardening and playing ball and, and boom, judgment starts, you know. And it doesn't get better. It's like the flood. It just keeps coming until it swallows up everything. So the conclusion is, verse 42, that therefore be on the, the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And then he offers another illustration. Be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. He's telling you exactly what it's going to be like. You you just won't think it's going to happen and then it's going to happen. It's like the flood. So his illustration is this. In life, security requires vigilance, right? You have to be ready because a thief doesn't call ahead, right? Hello? Hello? Sorry to bother you, but uh, this is Benny the cat burglar. (laughs) What can I do for you, Benny? I was just wondering if you guys were going to be home tonight, but sometime between uh, 12 and 2 a.m.? No, no, we're going to be out of town. We're going to my sister's. Okay, that's all I wanted to know. Thank- that doesn't happen. <clears throat> they might be uh, surveilling you, but they don't usually just... Uh, vigilant people don't give that away, kind of information. So protecting your property is always a matter of keeping the possibility that it could happen any time in mind. That's what Jesus is saying. So in the second coming, the, the judgment of God coming... He says, you've got to have it in mind that it could just happen and it's going to happen at a time when you're not expecting it. It's something else to keep in mind that we don't know when God will bring the world as we know it to an end. That's, it's going to come crashing down and his son, the Messiah, is going to set up his righteous kingdom. You've got to keep that in mind. That could happen at any time. And he's telling us it's going to be a surprise. So there's two imperatives, there's two commands. Verse 42, be on the alert. And verse 44, be ready. And then from there to the end of chapter 25, there's four main sections describing what will happen to those who are not ready. And nowhere else did Jesus present a more thorough warning of doom. There's four sections, three parables and one clear explanation describing what it means to be ready.
and what it means to be unprepared. And we'll look at that next Sunday. Come back, same bad time. Let's pray. Our great God, with what passion you tell us the future, with what zeal you have that you will bring it about, you will bring judgment to a sinful world, to see justice done and righteousness established. It's your heart. You are patient, you are compassionate, you are slow to anger, but men take slowness as a freedom to do wrong. And don't let us be like that. Let us be ready for the day you move to bring your kingdom to this world. Let us be about your business and not wasting time. Let us hold up the gospel light so men will see it and find salvation in your son, our coming king and our wonderful savior, in whose name we pray, amen.